0: and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer Laura Zaro-Kapinski, and today Linda Cohen-Leugman joins me to discuss her new novel, The Matchmaker's Gift. Bestselling author Kate Quinn says Leugman's latest is a gem, both funny and moving. The Matchmaker's gift, gift made me smile from start to finish, and I completely agree. I was finding every opportunity to keep going back to this book and sneak in another chapter. A little more about Linda. She grew up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts and received a bachelor's in English and American Literature from Harvard and a JD from Columbia Law School. Her debut novel, Two Family House, was a USA Today bestseller and a nominee for the Goodreads 2016 Choice Awards in Historical Fiction. Her second novel, The Wartime Sisters, was selected as a Women's World Book Club pick and a Best Book of 2019 by Real Simple. The Matchmaker's Gift is her third novel. Linda, thank you for coming on A Bookish Home and congratulations on the book. I have so been looking forward to this conversation.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get to chat with you today. So I really appreciate you letting me on. Can
0: you tell listeners who haven't gotten a chance to pick it up yet a bit more about The Matchmaker's
1: Gift? Sure, of course. Um, So this is my first dual timeline story. So this is... um, a jewel timeline story about Sarah, who is an immigrant. She comes to New York when she is a young girl in 1910, and she lands on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And she very quickly discovers that she has a gift for finding other people their soulmates. And then the story travels to 1994, which is the main timeline for Sarah's granddaughter, Abby. And Abby has very inconveniently inherited her grandmother's gift. Um, And it's inconvenient for Abby because she just happens to be a divorce attorney. So this (laughs) blessing is a curse for her. And, um, you know, it it really interferes with the career that she's been trying so hard to build. I loved both of
0: these characters so much. And, you know, sometimes in a dual timeline book, there's one story or the other that you're sort of like racing to, through to get back to the other one. Mm -hmm. And in this one, i was so invested in both. And, Um, You know, I love history. I love historical fiction. And I um, really just loved kind of being immersed in the world of the Lower East Side at kind of the turn of the century and uh, reading about the matchmakers. And I would love to hear a little bit more kind of about maybe what drew you to that period in history and kind of how you went about bringing this world to life and this character.
1: Sure. Um, First of all, I'm so happy that you say that you that you liked both timelines um, equally because that was really <clears> – <throat> that was a big goal of mine. I didn't want this book to feel like one of those stories where you're mostly, you know, in the present and then you just have, like, these little dips back to the past. So it's really two very equal um, – they each get equal time in the stories, both Sarah and Abby. And I actually wrote the story in the order that, that you read it um, to really – Make sure that all the connections were important. You know that that it wasn't just two separate stories that I sort of smushed together um, without thinking about it. So that so that makes me really happy. So thank you for saying that. Um, so in terms of the story. Um, this was my COVID book. A lot of the books, I'm sure a lot of the books that we're all talking about now were written during COVID um, or at least started during COVID or finished during COVID or something to do with COVID. But um, in March of 2020, I was working on a different book. And then my daughter came home um, from college because the dorms you know, were all closed. So college was shut down. And of course, it was pretty devastating. And she asked if she could bring her roommate home with her, which... Um, You know, of course we were happy to do, we had an extra room in the house and my daughter's name is Ellie, her roommate's name is Adele. So the girls came home in, you know, like in the middle of March of 2020. And so two things happened, which really led me to write this book. The first was that suddenly we were talking about really different things at the dinner table, because before they came home, I was, you know, at home with my with my son and my husband and my dog, um, we were not have we were not really discussing women's issues at that table of men. <laughs> um, <laughs> when the girls came home, we were really talking about, you know, things they were facing in school, their concerns about going out into the working world. They wanted to know what my life was like as a as an attorney in the nineties, um, and sort of the things that I had faced, what advice I had for them as women. And it became pretty obvious to the three of us very early on in our conversations that, you know. Unfortunately, not that much had changed from when they were from when I was in school and their age to when they, you know, were thinking about the working world for them. So that was something that was really in my mind as I was going into the inspiration for this book. And the actual inspiration came because, you know, we were binge watching like everybody else. (laughs) And we our first binge watch was called Indian Matchmaking on Netflix, which is a great show. And when we were all done binge watching that show, Adele turned to me and said, you know, my grandmother used to be an Orthodox um, matchmaker in Brooklyn. And she pulled up on her phone, this article from the New York times with her grandma, picture of her grandmother right in the center of it. And just reading that article and sort of seeing, I mean, who would have thought like that, like, I don't know, Jewish matchmakers would be in the New York times in 1977. It was just so strange to me. Like, and That got me really thinking about it. So I spoke to my agent and told her that I was thinking about writing a matchmaker story after the book I was working on. And she got back to me really quickly and said, you know, I can't stop thinking about this idea. I want to tell your editor about it. And she did. And then they both wanted me to like jump on that right away. So it was very interesting to me because I I was sort of halfway through another book and it wasn't really, you know, I was uh, kind of stuck in it in that book, because COVID made everything seem so meaningless, you know, early on. But it was it really interesting to me that both my editor and my agent wanted to read this matchmaking book right away. And I think a lot of that was because we were at a time when we were all so disconnected and so isolated. And if you think mm-hmm. about a matchmaker, it's all about connection, you know. And so that, I think, was really why they, they, they wanted that story. You know, they wanted to read it. And that was just fascinating to me that they were so certain, you know, oh, this is the story you should write for right now. Um, I
0: I think it's so interesting, too, that because because you're right, so many of the authors I'm talking to right now, their books started in COVID. And I just think it's so interesting that, you know, most of these books are have nothing to, to do specifically with the pandemic. But creatively, it's just so interesting that so many of the books that are out there now wouldn't exist because those different sparks of inspiration. Like I was just talking to um, Annabelle Monahan, who wrote Nora goes off script mm-hmm. and for her, it was her adult children came home and like she was kind of fantasizing about this like glorious tea house. Yes. She shed type thing where she could be alone yeah. <laughs> writing oh, and the course. book kind of spun from that. And it's like all these, books that would not have necessarily existed in, in the same way. I just think that's so interesting, the kind of the way that creative process works, but you're right in terms of like the matchmakers, that's the perfect thing to be thinking about at the time of like bringing people together.
1: Yeah. I think it's just an interesting, I mean, there will be so many studies done of, of people's brains and how they were affected by COVID probably more with children than with adults, but the creative yeah. process, I think, um, well, it was greatly affected for me. I mean, I just think it's funny to me, too, that I wrote my very most joyous book during the worst time, <laughs> the time yeah. when I was actually, like, the most worried and anxious that I've ever been in my life. You know, I wrote, came, and out of all that came the most joyous story. Right. Um, so. Well, and,
0: and in terms of the research, too, um, because I'm sure when you first thought of it, maybe in your mind, you were thinking, well, this will go on a few weeks. And then, you know, I'm sure I can go like immerse myself in, the you know, in the history and person and everything. And I, I bet that didn't happen. So how did you go about doing your research?
1: Well, so the research was really interesting, because the whole idea of it was interesting, because you know, I, I say to my agent and my editor, I'm going to write a matchmaker story. And they're like, great. But meanwhile, that sounds an awful lot like a romance, you know, and I don't write romance. I write historical fiction. So the very first thing I had, my very first problem was, of course, like, how am I going to come at this from a historical point of view? Because there have been plenty of matchmaker books. Um, and they're romances, generally, you know, So so I was coming at it from a very different place. And the first thing that I really had to do was pick the time period. That was what... That I knew was the the most important decision at first because what the time period was sort of going to determine everything the tone all of it and so the 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 grandmother of my daughter's roommate was a matchmaker in the 70s so I could have gone with the 70s I could have gone with the 1950s because everybody loves the 1950s you know that's like always the the, the perfect time period um, for readers they love it but I started my research online, of course, because there was nothing else to be done for that. Um, and I went to a bunch of different websites. So the New York Public Library, the Tenement Museum, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, the Jewish Museum, and then the Eldridge Street Museum. And I had spoken when I had when my first book came out, I spoke at the Eldridge Street Museum, which is this beautiful old synagogue on the Lower East Side. And There was there happened to be an exhibit at that time, a virtual exhibit called Love on the Lower East Side. And that seemed to me to be a great place to start. And that is so that's where I started. And when I went through that exhibit, um, that's sort of what gave me my time period, because they referenced a wedding in 1909. That was the wedding of this Romanian immigrant who was the daughter of somebody that they called the pickle millionaire um, of New York because he owned all these pickle stores on the Lower East Side. And and that wedding was this huge affair with like 2,000 people invited in the middle of Rivington Street, and the New York Times covered it. And there was this line from the New York Times article that covered – I mean, the the idea that the New York Times would be covering an immigrant wedding, you know, in 1909, high society. But it was just so – all of it was odd. All of it was just really something that made you – Stand up and take notice. And so there was this line from that that they put on that Eldridge Street website from the article, and the line was: the scent of roses and orange blossoms mingled with the odors of dried herring and pickles. So that was like the perfect line when I read that, um, and I was like, "Well, that's what I want my book to be—like roses and pickles. Like yeah. this is this is my story. Yeah. This is the time period that I want." to delve into. So I went and looked to find that actual article in the New York Times. And it was easy to find. And there was this Yiddish word in that article, a which is the Yiddish word for matchmaker, which I had never heard before. And then I thought that was like, even like triply, doubly, whatever strange, like why was the New York Times quoting Yiddish? Like why were there Yiddish words in New York Times? <laughs> articles? So then I like did this check for that word. And I came up with this other article from 1910 that was like, rates for husbands on the increase. And that and and it was so fascinating because what these articles and that research told me and taught me was that at that time in 1910 in New York City, there were over 5,000 professional Jewish matchmakers and the bulk of them were men. So once I found that out, I knew that was my time period.
0: Which is so, so surprising too. That, there, that shocked me reading that the matchmakers were all... Men and I'd love to hear a little bit about that sort of real history and how hard it would have been to try to be a female matchmaker at at the time, which we get to read about. But yeah, I mean hear. I yeah. think
1: I so it was mostly men because it was a real business. Like this was a career, you know, like this was how people were feeding their family. And it wasn't something that was like a side hustle, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you know, like today, it's mostly women who, if there are still matchmakers around, and there are, um, it, it's mostly women. And I, I do kind of think that's a little bit because it's not the lucrative job that it once was, which sort of, you know, goes back to thinking a lot about what I was talking about with my daughter and her roommate at the kitchen table. You know, like this was a job for men because it was a high paying job if you did it well. And these men would have, in my mind, would have been really resentful of a woman who is trying to do their job. So there were women who did it and, but the thing is without, so, so a lot of this, you know, came from my imagination. I didn't know, like there were fact, you know, a fact is there were over 5,000 professional matchmakers. There is another fact that there were matchmaker unions, none that I could find in America, but I found some reference to matchmaker unions like in Poland. But so it was my imagination that led me to create this story of a young woman kind of being harassed by all these, you know, matchmakers in her neighborhood who happen to be men. But it is also a fact that a matchmaker never would have been unmarried back then or even now. Like no one, there, there aren't unmarried matchmakers that are allowed in religious settings, you know, in, in communities where people are, are fairly religious at all. Because it's a modesty issue, um, you know, an unmarried woman isn't or man isn't supposed to be talking to another unmarried woman or man and hanging out with them and, you know, having an intimate mm. with them. But it's also like, you know, how can you be a matchmaker if you're not married yourself? You know, so nobody would. You have to like prove your business yeah. <laughs> now. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that would have just been really not done at all. That would not have been allowed. So there are, it's a blending of fact and fiction. Um, and there were like, when we, when we say matchmaker, we think of like Fiddler on the roof and, and maybe Dolly from Hello Dolly, but yep. <laughs> there were also these other, there were these other kind of iconic figures that we don't really think of, but there was this, this, um, Yiddish daily cartoon gimple banish that that was printed in the Yiddish daily forward back then. And that was the story of a male matchmaker, you know, and he had a vest and a top hat and he walked around and he was like the Mr. Magoo cartoon of matchmakers (laughs) because he Mm -hmm. was always getting in trouble and he was never doing things quite right. And he wasn't getting paid and he was just like a bumbling matchmaker. So it was a humorous thing, but it was a man for sure. And then like Bernard Malamud had this short story, um, the magic barrel about a matchmaker. And that was a man. So there was also this novel called shulam the shadkhan which is like this very old book but so they were you know the in that time period we don't know about them now but the but the the figures that people were thinking of were men so
0: and and when in doing all this research are you somebody who struggles at all with sort of deciding okay i have enough to write or are you someone who kind of wants to keep digging and keep digging. And cause I know that's something I, yeah. I struggle
1: with. Yeah, it's really hard with historical fiction, isn't it? Like, it's just, that's a struggle always. When, when do you stop? And when do you have enough? Cause it's never enough, but there's this, there's such a fine line because you don't want your novel to read like a Wikipedia entry. You know, you're not right. writing an encyclopedia, you're writing a novel. And I think for me, the writing starts when I sort of can't contain myself anymore. You know, it's like you get so excited about all the little things you're finding that you kind of can't hold it in anymore and it spills over. Um, and I don't know, that's that's how I really felt with this story. Um, with my first book, I didn't even know that I was writing historical fiction. I just was told that that's what it was afterwards. (laughs) My second book was definitely historical fiction because it was World War II era. And that was really serious. And I don't think I'll ever write a World War II era book again, um, just because that research is, that's not for me. Like it's, you have to be so, so careful because people take it so seriously as they should. But I, I like to have I like to be a little more playful, you know. I, I I loved this research so much because I kept finding these little whimsical tidbits, and I kept being able to really play with them, and that's what made it so special for me. Like when I found out about the Kinnish War of 1916, you know, yes. <laughs> I mean, like the war is Romeo and Juliet, right? So I have my matchmaker matching the son of one warring competing kanish family to the daughter of the other competing <laughs> kanish family and it's the capulets and the montagues and you know like i can just have so much fun with that but i don't want you know to to be doing the kind of research where if i get the the number of days of a battle in you know wrong someone is going to be upset with me and yeah. the story because you know i've got something wrong so i i love to do research but i love to do research because it informs me of like the human condition, you know, and it lets my imagination, it sparks my imagination. I don't want to do it for the sake of, I don't know, doing it. I don't want to feel so, so tied to it. Like I I, I like the fiction in historical fiction. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it.
0: Well, and you have, you know, the two different storylines that you're kind of trying to weave together and you're holding these sort of two different, um, you know, the more con- contemporary. Although now I'm like, oh, I guess well, I guess I have to start accepting that the 90s was a while ago. But to me, I'm like, it's
1: so recent. Yeah, um, this technically historical. <laughs> I hate to tell <laughs> you, but my is historical. It's <laughs> not possible. Um, but you're kind
0: of holding all of this, the, the two time periods and the different um, storylines and um, the research. And I'm curious, sort of, do you have like, you know, the wall covered in like the the plot points and the and the research, or do you just kind of hold everything in your head? What's your kind of process like as you start writing?
1: I hold it all in my head, which is kind of like a curse because, <laughs> I, yeah, because my head just like fills up, and I'm in my head a lot. Like I, I, I'm not very present. I think sometimes with like, I don't know, with people in my life, I, I think sometimes I'm just like, I escape sometimes. My favorite thing to do is to just like go to bed at night and just turn over and my side and just think about like, that's when I really feel like, okay, I can just let myself live in that world. Um, and that's, oh, what actually that. Got me, yeah, that's what got me through like some of the worst parts of the pandemic was just that was that during those awful nights when, you know, we were all staying up worrying and we couldn't sleep, I could just drift into the Lower East Side and think about my characters. So it is like a, a great comfort to be able to escape into that world. But I'm not like an outliner. Um, I, I I take notes when I'm researching. You know, all the research I did, I definitely take notes. I don't tend to go back to my notes very much. I make these giant documents, and I keep throwing everything in there. And then... Um, I know, you know, who I kind of want my characters to be. I take a lot of time to think them through. And I actually start to outline when I'm about a third of a way through a book. Then I kind of, because I don't want to get lost in the murky middle. So when I'm about a hundred pages in, then I kind of lay out just with a list, really. Like, what do I think the rest of the book is going to look like? I still don't really know. Then when I'm 200 pages in, And I have about a third, this is rough numbers, but when I, and I have about a third of the way to go, then I outline in earnest. Then I am like, well, I have only a a finite amount of time to make everything happen that I want to happen. So then I start kind of loosely outlining chapters, you know, like I'll make lists of things that I want to happen. And I know, I always know how it's going to end and stuff. Um, this book was a little bit, was more complicated because it was really two kind of separate arcs of characters and separate stories. And I had to like wrap everything up. So, right. yeah, I don't know. It just, it comes together in the end. I don't know how exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I think it's
0: interesting too. I feel like I've heard this from people that um, the books that they were writing during the pandemic were their escape and comfort. And then I just think that's so lovely because then those books. Become our escape and comfort as readers, and um, I just think that's such a lovely um, part of kind of the
1: creative process. Um, it is. It is. You know, you you have to take your comfort where you can find it these days. You know, and so yeah. I think that that to do that for people is really special. Like. It's funny because so with my first two books, I didn't I had these stories, you know, that I wanted to write and I didn't this sounds this is going to sound like really selfish and terrible kind of. But like I didn't ever stop and think like, how do I want my readers to feel? Like I didn't, I was like, well, I have, especially my first book, like I had this story I was carrying around for 15 years that I wanted to write. And then I finally wrote it. But I, so it was like, my, my main thought was, I want to get this story out of my head and onto the page. And I want, I just want this story out there. But I didn't think like, how will this make the reader feel when they read this story that I finally got out there? Because I didn't think that I'd even have a reader, like who thinks that <laughs> so it right. was really got in my head but with this book so many readers have been sending me emails and things and telling me how this book makes them so happy and that's such a nice thing like so now i'm thinking about that you know like i never really thought about that before as but it's a very special thing to think that you can cheer somebody up or make somebody happy You know, it's just... Yeah, and
0: create a world that they want to be in for a while. And I love that. And, you know, it makes me wonder, I did want to ask you kind of what you've been reading lately. And I'm curious, are you drawn to that same thing as a reader? Or do you read something completely different? So, yeah, I mean,
1: I like... I like... Especially now, I've liked comfort reads. Like, my favorite books of this year have been really... What I would say, all really quirky books and books that just made me kind of laugh and think differently. So like I loved the Maid, which everybody loved, but I loved that book, The Maid by Nita Prose, and I loved lessons in chemistry by Bonnie Garmis and and I loved remarkably bright creatures by Shelby von Pelt, and they're all very quirky, very original stories. And I think there's a reason, you know, why they all did so well. Like they were all just huge blockbuster hits, but I love them. And they're very different, but like there's, they also have that thing in common, you know, like they're heartwarming in the end. There's something heartwarming about each one of them. And that, 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 that ability to create a story. That, that touches people's hearts that's just such a special thing I don't know so those books were sort of my my big three I love this there's a book called um, when women were dragons by Kelly Barnhill which is one of my all-time favorites of this year also that's a book really like about female rage and it's fascinating it's it's speculative oh. yeah I feel
0: like
1: she has children's funny. books too right I feel like I've read I think um, yeah her that's, that's that one is so special yeah I would definitely read that book. Um, I just read an arc of Pam Jenoff's new book, which is, um, the Sapphire code. And, you know, yes, she, I just does, read that too. It was so good. Yeah. She does world war two fiction so well. So that's a really fun thing. And I have Jennifer, um, Rossner's new book once we were home and I'm excited to read that. So that's going to be really good. And I have, I I mean, I'm lucky I have a couple and I have an arc of Natalie Jenner's book, which um, the every time we say goodbye, um, which is her new book, which I'm so excited to read, too. So those are like my arcs that I get to read, which is really like a big bonus of writing a book. People should, if people knew that they would get arcs from all these authors, <laughs> more people would write books. So just, <laughs> I will say that is one of my
0: favorite parts of doing the podcast, really? getting it's arcs good.
1: and things. And yeah.
0: 2023 is going to be a good year. There's some really twenty twenty three coming out. Yeah. It's really like, it's, it's going to be bopping. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, well, uh, are you able to say anything about um, your next project?
1: Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, so my next, get, my next book is, I, I sort of wanted to keep with this slightly veering direction that I'm heading in, which is um, still historical fiction, but a little bit lighter than my first two books and with a little touch of magical realism to it. So my next book is the same it has that. It has those things in it. And um, it's inspired by my husband's great-grandmother who was a pharmacist and graduated from pharmacy school in 1921. So there were not oh, wow. female pharmacists back then, but it's a lot of fun. Pharmacists, a Pharmacy is like a great setting because, you know, people come to the pharmacist, especially back then, like with all their secrets and woes and there's all kinds of, you know, a pharmacist back then was like your priest and your rabbi and your bartender <laughs> and your therapist all rolled up into ones. So it'll be a fun story.
0: Yeah. I'll look forward to that. Well, I really hope that listeners go pick up the matchmakers gift at their local bookstore. Um, get it from your library. Oh, I would imagine too, I didn't listen to the, the audio version, but I bet that would be a really,
1: a really good. Yeah. The audio version is fun because they, there are two, um, narrators so there's one narrator for Sarah and one for Abby and people have really liked it so yeah it's a it's it's a it's a lot of fun
0: yeah well I'll link um definitely link to the book and to any of the ones that you mentioned and thanks again for coming on I really enjoyed getting to chat with you and I'm gonna really look forward to
1: your next book well thanks so much for having me this was great
0: for links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode you can visit abookishhome.com and there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization bookshop.org which supports independent bookstores and if you'd like you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home I'm also sharing there all of the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports A Bookish Home and independent bookstores, so it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org shop A Bookish Home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy
1: reading.